This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Buy Into It. We talk computing and technology and startups and all the things that get your electrons ablaze. Tonight, we have Joe on panel with us. Welcome, Joe. Hello. Great to have you here. And we've also got a bit of a moonlighter. Dan Golding used to be part of our team and um, had to run off and really focus on his doctorate work. So he comes back to us as Dr. Dan. Welcome. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's been way too long. Great to have you here. Mm. All right. Tonight we will be speaking to uh, somebody about travel startup. Rome to Rio's uh, investment in a global engineering centre located in Richmond was all of the news in December and being on summer break, we didn't get around to it. But we're rectifying that now. We'll also speak to Dan a bit more specifically later about an update on the federal government's stance on investing in the games development industry. But before then, we will try and exploit him for his opinions on news (laughs) and random things. So before we get to that, in some of the news this week, Microsoft has opened a new startup accelerator in Sydney. Now, this is something that they've done around the world. Uh, This this particular one will be the eighth that they've opened worldwide. Mm. And while it was announced a little while ago and people have already moved in and started working together, uh, it was only officially opened today by the New South Wales Premier. Uh, the hub is a $35 million project by the current state government. Um, that's the Sydney Startup Hub. And uh, co-working space, Fishburners and a number of other companies have been operating out of it for a while now. So it's a great move for um, for the tech community just to have another uh, space where people can be working and making great connections and, um, yeah, dealing straight with vendors. Absolutely. It's really fascinating that, um, uh, you know, these sorts of startup spaces, these shared working spaces have become so crucial to the tech industries, which, you know, really, uh, you know, all the talk in the 1990s was that these sorts of technologies would obliterate the need for time and space, essentially, you know, Uh, you could work with anybody around the world. And yet it seems to have amplified the fact that actually people work best when they're in the same room with each other. Yeah, we need the the connections. Mm. And that type of workplace design will be very relevant to our discussion with Rome to Rio later on. Yes. Until we get to that, Vanessa, you got an email last week from Telstra. I did. I did. So it was an email from Telstra saying that I'm no longer going to have to pay for my silent line. Now, it was only $2.93 monthly. And if I'd been with Optus, I wouldn't have been paying a fee for that service at all. But Joe, what did we discover about why they were making the change? So apparently complaints about calls from telemarketers are up. So between 2016 and 27, there's been uh, 2017. There's been a 20% increase in these complaints to the Australian Communications and Media Authority. So Optus, uh, Telstra rather, decided to waive that fee. It's really fascinating though because I I personally get most of those calls to my mobile number considering that I don't have a phone attached to my home line. It's just for the internet. Who actually has a phone plugged into their landline? Obviously the people who write letters to ACMA. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had one connected for years. I'm sure most people are the same by now. Excellent. Straw poll. I think we've solved the world's problems there (laughs) but um, I do appreciate that little change in my monthly billing anyway. Mm. 
And what would Byte be without a cryptocurrency or Elon Musk story for the week? Absolutely. So a cryptocurrency mining site has hijacked millions of Android phones. This article on Engadget is a little bit vague on some of the details because they're not actually sure how parts of the exploit have been triggered. But uh, it's a really interesting story because it's an odd concept to think about people wanting to hijack mobile phones for their processing power. I don't know about you, but any time I process more than a couple of emails on my phone, mm. the heat it generates mm -hmm. is very noticeable. And when you're doing any sort of Bitcoin mining activity, you know, the heat is incredible. Mm. So it seems astounding to me that anyone would design an exploit like this. However, it is reported as so. Uh, so pretty much it's Malwarebytes who have detailed the drive-by mining campaign. And I really love the use of language there. I think it's, I think it's quite funny. Um, so they haven't got the, the trigger, but they believe that there were infected apps with malicious ads which would steer people towards the pages. And while we might not know the trigger, we do know that at least two of the sites had over 30 million visits per month and the combined domains had about 800 thousand visits per day. So we do think that the extent of people victimised by this is significant. So mm. that's just something for Android users to watch. Um, update your security because people have jumped on this now. And just be really careful about clicking on strange things on web pages. That's always our advice. And we'd like to welcome our first guest tonight. She is a PR and communications professional who has worked with Etsy, Peer Academy, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and Inspire9, amongst many other places. She's the co-lead of Startup Victoria's Female Founders Group. And this evening, she joins us in her capacity as Chief Operating Officer of Rome to Rio. Welcome, Kirstine Phelan. Thank you very much, Vanessa. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. After all these years <laughs> since we spoke to anybody from Rome to Rio, we spoke to your founders about five years ago and it was a thrill then to hear um, what your travel startup had been doing but you've survived you've thrived and we thought it's time to touch base and really hear what you're up to now so our motivation for contacting you was that we heard that you had set up a global engineering center in Richmond so we thought we need to hear how have you grown from the little travel startup that could into who you are now well, yeah, it's really exciting. Uh, in November last year, we moved from Inspire 9, which had been our home for approximately four years prior, and we really miss it, but we're really happy to move into our own space as well. Um, and it's really funny, we were literally as close as we possibly could be to Inspire 9, where so many of our friends are. We were growing quite rapidly at the beginning of 2016 uh, and 2017. I joined the team at the end of 2015 and, and we were probably around 10 people. And now we've got 40 people on the ground in Australia and about 30 people working around the world for us in a um, advisor capacity. Mm. Uh, so we decided that it was probably time to make the move into our own space and consider how we would grow into the company that we really want to be. And uh, so we decided to take on this really beautiful blank space. It used to be a um, sewing floor for Slimform, which is a uh, uh, ladies' underwear business. Uh, classic Richmond warehouse space. Yes. <laughs> so when we walked in there, it was absolutely raw. And you walk around the floorboards and you can still see needles like stuck in between the floorboards. Wow. Quite cool. You sort of pick them up and <laughs> collect, well, I collect them. And so does Rod, who's our, our uh, executive chairman. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, that's like our fun thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Needles in haystacks. Yeah. Great, yeah. great. Agreed. That's yeah. great for a search expert company. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly that's really what we do well. Yeah. We really do help you find a way through that haystack that is uh, the earth. Uh, so, yeah, we uh, worked with a really great designer. We worked with a really great builder and we polished up all the floors, cleaned all the windows, painted the painted the walls and really made it what it is and moved in in November. It's so it's, it's not just tech startups who agonise about their working spaces these days. I mean, it's very topical. There's plenty of um, businesses in Melbourne who have gone through redesigns of their offices trying to figure out how they can activate their ways of working in different ways rather than just having people go in and sit at the same desk all the time. So we hear about activity-based working. You know, we had hot desks. We've had them for a long time and that can be parts of the mix. But how did you start to interrogate the, the ways your staff could use a space? Right, well, one of the things that we wanted was a real continuity of experience from our experience at Inspire 9. One of the great things about that is that it had dedicated working spaces. If you needed to step away, you could. There was a place that you could communicate with others and you could socialise. And there was also places that you could have privacy. So all of that I thought was really important when we got to thinking about what the space would look like. We also went into consultation with our team. Rontaria is really big on that sort of consultation early on in the process where possible. So we had a, you know, I was like, what's something great that you would like to have? What's something that's like completely out of, you know, reach for us at the moment, but you you think about and dream about and what are the really practical things that you need and from there you can get like a real sense of pattern as you work through the process and that was the pattern that we really talked to our space designer and said these are some of the things that we're looking at at the moment yeah. and we wanted to also work with the beautiful the beautiful parts of the space that were already there. So there's these great mm. barn doors that open up at the mm. back. You get this amazing view of the MCG. Really spectacular. Yeah, wow. And so you had a space designer, someone dedicated to planning this. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think one thing that you learn as your business grows is that you're not expert at everything mm. and that working with someone who is professional can help you save money, save time, help you look at a problem in a different way if you mm. need to uh, and help you source um, things that make the space like really yours. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, excuse me. <coughs> yeah. <about> that. <coughs> and and I mean so that I mean that's kind of fascinating as well because this kind of planning for how people use an environment is actually a very like an online digital sort of thing not just in the real world I mean I uh, I mean uh, Vanessa mentioned my PhD at the start of this show which was actually about sort of how people use the spaces of video games and so this idea of sort of planning an environment for people to, to work through is, is totally totally fascinating so I mean did, was it in ta you know how, how deep did it go was it people are going to walk through this space in this particular way they're going to hang around this desk or yeah we looked at all of those sorts of things we thought about uh, a couple of different things one the touch points of mm. what you do during the day. So Room to Rio has some very specific touch points during the day and during the week. Every day we have a stand up at 10.30. So we needed spaces for all the teams to be able to do that and potentially have somewhere to visualise their work plans. Uh, we um, have had, in the past, we've had company lunches. So we needed a space where everyone would be able to either sit together but also sit apart. Mm. And we have a team meeting every week and we needed a space that was comfortable enough for us to have a team meeting and could also grow with us mm. so in a lot of ways the space was a little bit unfinished when we went in there we sort of got the bare basics in there we didn't do a lot in the way of decoration um apart from some plants and and some you know casual furniture um and that would would give us an opportunity i think to understand the personality of the space in 
uh, I guess, in a juxtaposition with our team. I love how that's such a startup approach is, to a it? space. It's like, let's not gold plate this and let's not make it too locked down. Mm. I love that you speak about how you're going to have to scale it. Yeah, and of course you have to be practical. There's, you know, it's quite expensive. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a good thing we we love this industrial tech chic. Mm. <laughs> not going to lie. It's much cheaper than gold plated, uh, you know, Miami Scarface style, that's for sure. So just as interesting as you investing in this space and doing doing all the design work, I think, is making the decision to have your engineering centre based in Victoria. I mean, that's a real win for us and for the people here. But what sort of conversations did you have about the future of finding talent for your business and how you're going to grow, especially when um, I've heard you say that uh, most of your customer base is international? Yeah, that's exactly right. Our customer base is really international. Over 70% of our traffic comes from Europe. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I've had a bit of a cold. Um, I think it's the wind today in Melbourne. You're totally mm. excused. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, well, a couple of things come to mind. Firstly, both of our founders, Bernie and Michael, were, um, well, Bernie was from Perth, but Michael, Michael's from Melbourne and, and, and did his uh, undergraduate and also his postgraduate, his PhD in Melbourne. And then the founders met when they were working at Microsoft in the Redmond, Virginia campus of Microsoft. And then both of them were at a stage in their life where they were looking for a bit of change. And they decided to come back to Australia and use Australia as the base to start the business because there's a lot of practicalities that come when you're starting with a new idea. It's really good to have your family around you to help you, friends around you that can help you, uh, advisors around that can help you. And it's a great lifestyle in Australia and mm. there's they're really that to consider as well. And really affordable real estate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can't have it all. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, <laughs> but so much else going for yeah, it, I think. definitely. Uh, so when the the company started here and they start, and the, um, the founders started hiring talent, I mean, there is an incredible amount of computer science talent that comes out of the universities of Victoria. We should be really proud of the work that's being done here at the moment. Uh, and... Uh, uh, as the company started to grow, particularly in 2016, we were hiring a lot of graduates. We went into uh, a really distinctive phase of graduate uh, engagement. Uh, we visited Monash, RMIT, Mel uh, University of Melbourne. We've been, we've given, uh, we've had members of our team give lectures. We've taken part in all of the um, career days and things like that as well. So. Uh, I think that uh, making the decision to base us in Australia means that we can take we can take advantage of all that fantastic talent that we have on the ground here. So it, do, it felt like a bit of a no-brainer, really, mm. in a lot of ways. Oh, that's good uh, to hear. Do you think there's a like particular sort of almost like travel culture of Australia that really fits in? So, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, Lonely Planet and, you know, that you know, um, expanding out to, you know, the Wheeler Centre. And we were talking about Adioso earlier. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they were, well, absolutely. Lonely Planet for a mm. start are like the heritage travel brand in Melbourne. Mm. Um, I know that when I first went to Inspire 9, I did notice that there was quite a lot of travel startups that were based around that space. And Rod, actually, our executive chairman, wrote a story about that, I think, for the Inspire 9 blog or perhaps our own. Um, I also think there's this idea of like Australians are always out exploring the world and they sort mm. of like deeply understand the challenges that come from travelling. Mm. But at the same time, when you're working on a product that is for a global audience and you do it in Australia, it's really important to put yourself in the market where people are using your product as well. So we have a program that we run where we actually... Um, um, 
send off our team to Europe. So you've, if you've, when you've been with the company for two years, you can you get a stipend. It'll pay for you to wow. go. To, I know. What? <laughs> that was really great. I went last year. I went to Italy huh. and Greece. It was really amazing. Fantastic. Um, and we send people off and we also um, provide people with a stipend to um, use all of the transport. Mm. And that includes, you know, for instance, I was in Italy and Greece. Now, Italy and Greece, particularly where I was in the Greek islands, ferries are the, like, that's mm. the highway. And it's really, you don't think about ferries when you're in Australia. <laughs> and I that was the first time I'd really experienced, like, large-scale inter-country ferry travel, and I was blown away by it. It's like the way to go as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's so comfortable. All, all future within Australia travel will be on the smoothest as well, I've, noticed there, I've noticed that there is a few more ferries. There's yeah. a couple on, down the peninsula now, which is you really You need a great. New Zealand trip. Yeah. Yes, well, yeah. that's right. I haven't been to New Zealand since I was young. Mm. But so also there, rail as well. Like, yes. rail is so huge. In mm. Australia, rail, the idea of, like, intercity rail is just almost foreign to us. However, I think after the broadcast of The oh. Garden... Oh. I think so that, they, that they might have stimulated <laughs> yeah. rail sales. Absolutely. <laughs> maybe, but not for business, maybe. And, yeah. <laughs> maybe you guys should uh, look at some partnerships there. Maybe. With the slow TV. Oh, there's so, mm. there's so much to do. Very nice. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what your product roadmap looks like now that you have established your Global Engineering Centre. Mm, okay, well, we've talked about this really recently mm. uh, in the team and that is uh, we really want to be the go-to resource for travelling anywhere in the world from A to B. And that, you know, that resource means a couple of things. It obviously means that you've got a mobile uh, element and an app element as well as a website, so a desktop environment. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that and we've got two really fantastic developers at the moment who are working on our mobile apps and doing a really great job. Uh, we're really thinking about uh, how we can be a better service to our customers. So Room to Rio is essentially a search site, but we are hybridising at the moment mm. into an OTA model. OTA, for those who don't know, is online travel agency. So it's essentially your ability to book. So through Room to Rio at the moment, you can go on, you can search for transport. It's probably not as widely known that you can also search for accommodation. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it means probably down the track, we'd probably be looking at things like attractions maybe even insurance maybe sim cards who knows like there's a whole there's a whole wealth of things out there that you can do if only you have enough time and enough resources so of yes. course we have to prioritize what we really need to do and our customers really just want information about how to get from a to b safely they want to have an understanding of how much it's going to cost them so they can plan and they want to know how long it's going to take them and what all of their options are so i think that's the thing that rome to Rio does really really well i think it does and i didn't appreciate it so much years ago when i was just testing it in australia mm. with my australian knowledge <laughs> and and that was great. It was fun. And I'd be like, what's the weirdest bit of transport I can find? Can I find a cyclo and can I find a camel? But when I was stuck in Scandinavia trying to find my, you know, different ways to get in between some countries, Rome to Rio was a real lifesaver because it just brought a transparency um, both to the time and the cost and the speed. Like it just brought that all to life. Uh, and that was very useful. It had come a long way. Well, I mean, that's, the great thing, like I have gone out wearing a Rome to Rio t-shirt mm. and uh, I remember buying shoes one day and this girl come up to me and going, oh, I love Rome to Rio so much. Mm -hmm. You really saved my life when I was, I can't quite remember where she was, but you really saved my life. And, and you know, like everything, it, you know, it's really beautiful in concept, but it's really when you hear from a customer and they say how much you have made their life easier. That's really what it's all about. 
Yeah, I think that's the thing. With mm. with travel, it can feel quite urgent and, and desperate or just yeah. very expensive if you get it wrong and, mm. you know, you find out things later. So the, the information in a timely way is, mm. is very important. Well, that's right because we've recently just changed from, like as I said, from the hype, we've moved to this hybridisation. So not only can you search for particular trains or particular buses, but you can also now book them directly on Rome to Rio. So we have now have this like extended customer service uh, experience with people who are travelling which means that we're getting a much greater understanding of urgency and uh, people who are like, I'm probably feeling a bit nervous. I haven't been here before. I think Australians with our intrepid nature maybe sometimes don't realise that for other people they're a little bit scared about getting on a train in Italy or a bus in China. Mm. Whereas I think maybe Australians have got that sort of happy-go-lucky but also adventurous nature that makes them more open to experiences like that. So sp- Oh. oh no! I was, I was just going to say. I mean, it, it, do you do you get many users using it as sort of almost like a like a virtual travel experience? You know, like I know a lot of people who just go on websites that you know sort of tell you about. Well, this is the train from Florence to to Venice, and you know, like this is the kind of seat you'll sit in. And like they're not going because they can't afford it, but you know, it gives them that sort of insight. Yes, recently, I think, yes, there's a couple of ways that people do that. One, you can plan itiner- rather, rather elaborate itineraries Great. with our multi-hop mm-hmm. uh, part of our site and you can save that into, you know, a user experience and look at it later on if you want to. We've also recently launched Travel Guides, which is uh, an editorial component of the site where we explain how to use all of the trains in Italy mm. and, like, if you're going to get... The, why why should I get the green class in Japan? Is that a good idea? Because I keep saying I should buy that. So I'm a little obsessed about Japan at the moment because <laughs> I'm, I'm, nice. I'm going in a couple of weeks and it's all I can think about. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, sh- or should I, get, should I get the first class train when I'm in um, when I'm in Italy or is the night bus really okay should I take the night bus if yeah. I'm going to be taking going from France mm. to Belgium or something like that so yeah I think that we can answer a lot of those questions through really fantastic expert uh, information that we get from a host of riders all over the world who are on the ground and really can help people with that so yeah I think there's a couple of ways that you can do that really well in Rome to Rio now. You've spoken a little bit about some of the characteristics of Australians as travellers and Mm. I wonder what about characteristics of us as employees? When we talk about hiring values, we've already heard that you've got some great perks at Rome to Rio Mm. if you can just (laughs) stick around to the two-year mark. (laughs) You can get to Rome and Rio. Uh, However, you know, when you look at the hiring values, what do you look for? Well, first and foremost, we're in, we're a technology company and we're an engineering company. And uh, our CEO, Michael Cameron, has actually spoken at length about this internally, about what we look for when we hire people. One of the things we look for uh, is like this idea of intellectual horsepower. It's like seeing a problem and thinking through the problem quite quickly. I think that's a really big skill. Um, I guess it's also the ability to... Um, Maybe like be agile, like not be completely tied to a process, which is something I really had to work on, to be honest, when I first started, because as you can tell, I love a spreadsheet. Mm. Um, so, Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> so I really, yes. I really had to think about that. Uh, the other things we think about is like, you know, your ability to have fun at work, uh, thinking about the customer, thinking about the user. Um, and also I think honesty is really important and being able to communicate, which I honestly believe in every organisation is really hard and it's something that needs to be worked out all the time. It's something we've been talking about a lot, the the idea of glass box brands, but also that moving to the organisation and how to... Uh, how, so many startups do transparency quite well, but how do you scale that at a sensible 
you know, level and keep your IP sort of discreet from that or any regulatory things that you need to do discreet from that. It's a, a very relevant conversation at the moment. I think we're only going to be hearing more of it. Christine, thank you so much for coming in and sharing a bit about the very exciting Rome to Rio journey. We wish you very well in thank your new centre. Ah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming in. If you haven't seen Rome to Rio, it's rometorio.com. Dr. Dan Golding is a lecturer in media and communications at Swinburne University and an award-winning writer with over 200 publications. He co-wrote Game Changers, which he very kindly came and spoke to us about with Lena Van Deventer, and was director of the Free Play Independent Games Festival from 2014 to 2017. He used to be a member of the Byte team and tonight he joins us to discuss the Senate inquiry into video games development industry. Welcome. Mm. Yeah, it's as I said, it's fantastic to, to be back here. It's great mm. to have you. Mm. Even if I'm looking through very strange mic arms yeah, at you. Yeah, yeah. You seem so far away on yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, Dan, it's been a long time coming, the results of this inquiry. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. d- am I correct in saying the inquiry began in 2016? Uh, yeah, it was commissioned by um, the, well, sort of referred by the government to the, to the um, Standing Committee on Environment and Communications uh, in actually um, 2015 right. was when it was referred. And the actual inquiry itself took place, I think, at the end of that year, uh, over about a month or so. They, they went to Melbourne and uh, Brisbane and Sydney, I think, uh, and they skyped in somebody from Western Australia, uh, but couldn't make it out there. Uh, and nice I, to see them using our funds efficiently. Yeah, well, that makes exactly. Sense. Yes. Well, look, there's an interesting recommendation about uh, the state of the internet, which maybe we'll get to in, in a moment. But um, I actually uh, gave evidence at the um, Melbourne hearing. We um, like to go to primary sources here, Dan. Yeah, As you know, we yeah. keep a very high standard on <laughs> that, this show. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, and. It was, you know, no expense uh, barred. I, I tweeted a, a photo of the time of um, the handwritten sign with text that said Senate inquiry um, <laughs> outside the room. Fills one with confidence. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it was sort of, you know, a, a smallish affair. But, you know, it was, uh, I think they had about five senators uh, in the Melbourne hearing and they sort of rotated because there's quite a few people on the committee. Um, but they would usually fill it with uh, a Greens member. Scott Ludlam was sort of the driving force behind the inquiry and he was at all hearings um, but they had someone from Liberals, Nationals, Labor uh, as well as him at every inquiry uh, and so what happened at the end of that process which was really laborious and there was you know well over 100 I think about 130, 40, 50 in the end uh, sub- written submissions um, for which then they had about uh, six or seven people at least at each uh, in-person hearing. That was written up, all of that was transcribed and turned into a report, which was unanimous, which is really unusual. So when people commission these sort of inquiries mm. mm-hmm. into a, a developing industry, yeah. what are we expecting to see? Uh, well, usually we'll expect to see far fewer submissions. Yeah. Um, that's quite unusual that there was a lot. And mm. it wasn't like there was a lot, uh, you know, from sort of, you know, big industry players, although they they did that, of course. But we saw, you know, the bulk of the submissions were really from smaller studios, you know, people who were running one, two, three-person um, companies. And really making their case to government about what could help our industry. I- exactly. Yeah. From really sort of first-hand experience. Um, mm. And then you sort of have the usual hangers-on such as 
artists myself uh, <laughs> who, who sort of, you know, just, just research. Putting their feet yeah, in wherever exactly. they can. Yep. Very nice. Um, and, and, and so, so yes, so the report that came out of this, the, the, the report from the Senate Inquiry was unanimous. So usually you might have sort of a dissenting opinion um, from, you know, it's hard to get great, the Greens, Labor, Liberals and Nationals to agree on, on anything pretty much, I would say, but they agreed on... This so there's usually a number of recommendations yep. there and so sometimes people will agree and disagree on different recommendations. So, right. Okay, right. so we've got yeah, unanimous u- result. Unanimous across eight um, eight, eight recommendations. recommendations. Right. Um, and so they were basically put to the government. The report was, was uh, you know, given to the government in, uh, when was it? In uh, the 29th of April, 2016. Mm. So was, that's a while ago now, I suppose. And the government has finally gotten back to industry um, or, or really reported on this um, about two weeks ago. Which um, is which is why we're talking about it now, despite mm. it being uh, so far in the past from our point of view. But we really yeah. did need to hear what happened to those recommendations. Would the government take them on? Yeah, absolutely. And the answer to that is... is Pretty much no, uh, they won't um, across the board. Um, so there's one recommendation out of the eight that the government supports, and they. So, so let's hear that one. Okay, so this one, and this is a very curious one. Yeah. This is recommendation four, which is to encourage the further uptake of serious games in the healthcare, education, and other sectors. And the government supports this, but they say in bold in principle, and then advises the industry bodies to lobby the state governments to basically take that up rather than the federal government. Um, yeah. Um, and, and the reason why I say it's a bit of a funny recommendation is because that was kind of an unexpected outcome of, of this whole Senate inquiry process. That was sort of the, the whole serious games for health and education was was not really within the original remit of the, the Senate inquiry. It sort of was a bit of a sidebar to the whole process. Not that it's not worthy, but it's not really what the whole thing was commissioned to look at because the serious games sector is a very small part, a very small part of Australia's video games industry, which is already only about 900 people employed um, full-time according to the latest statistics. And so, um, yeah, not that that's not worthy, but it's just kind of a bit um, bemusing. Was it just a bit easier to agree to, particularly when no funds have been yeah. directed towards the outcomes? Well, yeah. said, well. It's, it's a nice narrative um, that's easier to sort of, I think, get behind. It's sort of like, it's, we're not really supporting video games, we're supporting health and education and these sorts of things. So perhaps there's a bit of an image problem. Let's get yeah. to that in a moment. Sure. And what did the other recommendations that didn't get support yep. from the federal government have yeah. to say? So there were quite a few. And when we say didn't get support, we have to sort of break that up into two categories. And that there are some that the government flat out says, we're not interested, we don't support this. And there are some that they simply say, the government notes this recommendation. And that's, <laughs> and that's by far the most common response. So for example, recommendation one was that the committee recommended that there was there should be a reintroduction of federal funding for video games, for which there is currently nothing. not a cent and the government notes that recommendation there used to be a fund um, it was called the Australian Interactive Games Fund and it was um, sort of introduced by the Gillard government and then very quickly taken out of commission when the Abbott government uh, got into power it was pretty much the first thing actually out of anything was pretty much the first thing that a red line was drawn through when they when they um, you know uh, took power Uh, then we've got uh, the uh, tax offset which is something that the Australian games industry have been sort of the, the peak bodies have been lobbying 
lobbying for this for about two decades now. So the Australian film industry receives fairly generous tax offsets for making films in Australia and that attracts foreign investors apart from anything. Um, but it's sort of, you know, it's been one of the things historically, I mean, even dating back to the 1980s, a lot of those, you know, Man from Snowy River, um, you know, Gallipoli, Break em Around, these sorts of films were funded partially by tax breaks rather than anything else. Um, the 2-1-B, I think it's called. Uh, and so games industry has been asking for this for a while. Uh, and recommendation two, that is not supported flat out, uh, not something the government's inter interested in. Uh, number three is basically um, similar to what we've been talking about over the whole of this program, actually, which is to do with um, the creation of shared working spaces for games um, and, and, you know, people working in the games industries. Um, and there is one such currently in existence here in Melbourne called the Arcade and recently there have been others that have started up uh, actually I think there was one in in, uh, in Adelaide recently uh, and a, a few other, others around Australia uh, and the government notes this recommendation again uh, so there's no sort of outright support and they sort of basically suggest that it should be the state government's job to do this. Um, number four is the serious games that we've already heard about. Number five is uh, that uh, there was a lot of discussion about the tax implications of crowdsourced funding because a lot of video games today and certainly when the report was um, commissioned, um, the inquiry was commissioned rather, um, are funded by crowdsource uh, and there hasn't really been any investigation into the tax implications of this whole thing. And, mm -hmm. and basically the government said, we don't support this recommendation. We're not going to do anything about it, but we do note some existing measures in place. Um, so there's sort of an ongoing discussion about that. Number six, I'll go through these quickly, uh, is that um, uh, the Australian government develop a discussion paper and consult about export market development grants. So basically getting the games international as an export, which they are basically. So the Australian games industry makes games and basically distributes them online 100%. And so they're a digital export. Um, you know, the most, most people that buy Australian games do not live in Australia. And so thinking about a lot of these sorts of questions, um, that, you know, is another one that was noted. Seven, second last, uh, was, uh, was something that was sort of the, the key topic of discussion that I presented on, which is to do with um, reviewing the measures encouraged by the government for taking into account whether the industry is improving the diversity of its workforce mm. and providing fair employment conditions, which... Uh, historically has been an issue, not just for Australia, but globally. Uh, but certainly uh, there was a, uh, a census survey by the ABS of the Australian games industry several years ago now uh, that revealed that at that point uh, there was 8.7% uh, of the Australian games workforce were women, mm. which is was at the time worse than construction and mining. Um, that's improved since then, but not out of sight. It's, you know, sort of more in the teens now rather than 8.7%. Uh, the government once again notes that. And then the final one, which I alluded to before, which is that the committee recommends that the Australian government commit to rolling out 21st century broadband infrastructure, which is a very diplomatically worded recommendation for a committee made up of Labor, Liberal, Greens and the Nationals. What does 21st century broadband infrastructure mean? Well, we can all agree <laughs> that Australia needs it, I guess. Um, and so once again, the government has noted the recommendation. It would put them in an awkward position, that one in particular. Yes, I think so, yeah. So let's talk about 
how some of these recommendations might have sounded to an incoming government mm. who went, what can we axe that will be uncontroversial? Mm. When we hear even recommendation one and we, mm -hmm. we hear the expression of a games industry, mm. I think a, a slight, you know, pub test mm -hmm. might have people reading that as you're putting money into people having fun in games, mm -hmm. uh, not thinking about this industry with any sense of gravitas and potential, you know, mm. not investing in a future burgeoning tech industry that can bring in more money in some countries than the film industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you've hit on what is really the fundamental outcome of this, um, which is not particularly surprising to me. Um, it seems to be surprising to some others, which um, I sympathise with certainly, but it, I think the question is one of image more than anything else, and certainly to a conservative government which might favour more traditional or what is sometimes, I guess, slightly disparagingly called heritage media forms or art forms, your, your operas, your, your ballets, which I love, but... Um, you know, they are certainly, they, they get funding uh, more from, from uh, the conservative end of the political spectrum traditionally. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the basically the ability for the Australian games industry to make an argument of what we provide that isn't just money, because that's super important, absolutely. So, are they looking to other... Um areas of the arts, which is yeah. really interesting to think of it, yeah. you know, in, in the arts yeah. uh, space yeah. for how they how they um, promote themselves and how they talk about their, their cultural imperatives and how they help yeah. build and amplify a, well, a well, culture. Well, they, they, they should be, mm. I think. Um, I mean, I think, you know, games have to some extent quite successfully, particularly with state governments and governments um, that might be more intrinsically sympathetic to the idea of, of funding a video game form uh, as a kind of a, an economic uh, stimulus, which they are, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and as a technological kind of industry, well, which they also are. And I can but understand why games makers might have pushed the technological angle before mm. because it seems like such an easy path. Sure. It seems like something that people would be excited to invest in. Mm. People talk about, you know, the future of sure. uh, work mm. in technology spaces and yet mm. somehow we're seeing uh, that games are excluded from being mm. categorised in this space mm. and yet they're also completely marginalised in the arts and seen as a low art yeah. in, or something. For, for sure. I mean, yeah, and I think that's that's the answer, you know. I don't think the red line was put through the Interactive Games Fund because it was a poor financial investment or because, it, you know, the government wasn't interested in technology it's clearly interested in both of those things to some degree. But, you know, the line was put through it because it's easy to say, oh, well, games are just, you know, what are they? They're just crap that you see people playing on their phones and they're disposable products that don't really mean anything and it's just, you know, they're kind of for losers and they don't really have much cultural impact. So if people want to read more about this, Dan, and, yep. and get informed and, and get ready for the next diplomatic discussions, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would you refer them to? 
Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of ongoing stuff like this. There was a great article uh, in Overland by uh, Brennan Keogh and John Banks about this just recently, just published a few days ago. Hilariously, Brendan, who's a colleague of mine, we've done a lot of research together and he's written this. He's being interviewed as we speak on this very topic by Community Radio 4 Triple Z in Brisbane. You know, Brisbane. Dan, we didn't want to tell you, but we did try and oh, get Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, Brendan. Yeah, you know yeah. that's not true. Um, no, but I mean, it's just <laughs> I mean, yeah. This, what, what are the odds? We should have live crossed between between two great community radio Look, stations. We're a massive fan of the work of all community radio yeah, stations. Yeah, but um, yeah. Beyond startups supporting the Australian games industry, in, sorry, supporting Australian video game culture is what the article's called, and it's on Overland, and that's by Brennan Keogh. And I think that really lays out a lot of the key ideas and sort of the the. And I guess we have to be grateful for what we have, and you know, big thanks to. Creative Vic, who yeah. are amazing in Victoria yeah. at recognising the value that games can bring, not just culturally, but as an industry, as, mm. a, as a place of really interesting employment and professional development. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's worth noting that in Victoria, at least, um, the video games industry has been supported by both Labor and Liberal governments. So it's not intrinsic to one side of politics. Mm. I think it's just the argument is easier to make to one side of politics. Dan, thank you very much for appearing in your capacity as games expert for us. A pleasure. 7.56 on Triple R. You're with Bite Into It with Joe, Dan and Vanessa for the last little bit. And there's a few great events on at the moment. Dan, what have we got there? Yeah, so first up... Uh, first up, we have the Creative Melbourne uh, event here in Melbourne, uh, which is on Sunday 18th to Thursday 22nd of February. So coming up really soon. Uh, and basically what it is, is it's described as a four day interactive experience uh, where a whole bunch of people get together. It's got some really, really interesting uh, and amazing guests. Some people from NASA, um, Juan Roman, um, who's the director, director of applied engineering um, at NASA, uh, to Cirque du Soleil, um, Bridget uh, Carboneau, uh, who's um, culture director and uh, an artistic director, uh, uh, Massimo Agostelli, uh, and a previous bite into it guest, I believe, from Intelligent Answers, uh, Dr. Arthur Shelley. So that seems really, really interesting. Um, if you're interested in that, it's just creativemelbourne.com.au. So th uh, the 18th to the 22nd of Yeah, Feb. I like that it's a combination of, of seminars and some hands-on workshop type things to yeah, build skills. So absolutely. I think that's really creative. Mm. Uh, there's a global legal hackathon happening from the 23rd to the 25th of Feb at Monash Uni and Monash are actually bringing this first year event to Melbourne because it's happening in all these other locations. So it's quite interesting to check out. If you are in the law space but also interested in law tech, then check out the global legal hackathon uh, and look up Monash Uni because their website is quite long. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that. There is also an interesting opportunity around the uh, Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio, friends mm. of the station with some excellent people running that, like Robin Fox and Byron Scullin, um, have just announced their second semester. So there's 12 weeks of masterclasses covering electronic music production, composition and management. So it's designed to help early career musicians and each workshop offers face-to-face -face time with working artists, musicians and professionals in the industry. Uh, and with the support of Creative Victoria, they are offering um, 12 lucky people full access to the season of workshops, including free weekly studio time at MESS 
So there's an expression of interest open now on their website. So if you go to MESS, which is M-E-S-S, dot foundation, then you can explore that opportunity and submit your case to the team and you might get lucky. That's pretty good. Look, we'd like to say a big thank you to our guests this evening, Rome to Rio's Kirstine Phelan and Dr. Dan Golding from <laughs> Swinburne University and Isn't the Free Play Independent Games Festival. A pleasure. It's been way, way too long. So good to have you in. Thanks, Joe, for pushing our buttons and being formidable with your music selections. Stay tuned for the International Pop Underground up next with Anthony Carew. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.